You're listening to the Boo Boys Podcast. All right. Well, my name's Dalton. I'm Ivy. I'm Daniel. I'm Joey. And I am S.A. Bradley. <laughs> and we're the Boo Boys. We've got our special guest today. Um, this week, we are going to be talking about cursed films. We're actually going to talk about Atuk, um, the in the, what is his name? It's Atuk, the incomprehensible, um, incomparable Atuk. And that's actually a cursed film that everyone who's ever been on it has died. And the Twilight Zone movie from 1984, three, 1983. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so you are a horror writer, right? You mostly write yeah. about like horror movies. Yeah, so I write about all things horror. Uh, I have a podcast called Hellbent for Horror, and we basically talk about anything that is uh, around the, the world of horror. It can be music, it can be television, it can be comic books, uh, whatever it is, because what I like to talk about is how these stories and things uh, informed me and shaped me over time, and just how horror always is talking about the culture and the time that you're in. It can't help but do that because, of course, it's trying to get a rise out of you all the time. And so uh, I have that on a podcast. I have a book called Screaming for Pleasure, and it's it's a little bit more of a deeper dive on that. And it does tend to be a little bit more about movies, but also things like the satanic panic in the 80s, where that took people uh, with music and uh, and books, because I always think the books are really interesting because that's where you can, at a certain age, you can't see horror movies that much, but at any age, if you're smart about it, you can read a book about horror and get all creeped out and have your parents really mad at you when you have nightmares for like two days in a row. That's the kind of thing I talk about. That's so funny. Because like I, as a kid, wrote, I read a lot of like Halloween and horror books when I was younger, and those were like my favorite genre, and I think that kind of shaped me into what I am now. But I wouldn't say that I wasn't allowed to not watch scary movies because I think I watched The Exorcist the first time when I was like six or seven, and I didn't really think that movie was scary. My favorite movie was Chucky when I was a kid, and my mom said I nailed the scare all the time. Oh, no. <laughs> so. Nice. That, that's such a creepy movie, uh, watching the original Child's Play. Oh, my gosh. Oh, of course right. I, yeah. I mean, uh, that, the idea of the doll, right? That uh, idea of uh, the uncanny valley. Where we're always just, we're cool with dolls that look not very much like human beings, but the more they start looking like human beings, the more nervous we get around them. And it's like those new dental dolls that they have in, in oh uh, Japan where it's like the tongue's dangling out. <laughs> like, oh, God, I hate that. Yeah, I'm talking about those like CPR dummies. Really makes you yeah. worry about the future of sex dolls. Oh, uh, I, I, I worry, honestly. I've always, I've always worried about the future of sex dolls. <laughs> I mean, if it doesn't like you and it becomes sentient, then. Oh, we yes. all saw you know? Okay, we know how that goes. Yes. You start getting stalked. Yeah, you get stalked by your sex doll. That would be like the worst. <laughs> all right. Well, do you guys want to hear about the Twilight Zone? I'd love to. Yeah, this is did you guys I even know that there was a movie about the Twilight Zone? I did. No. Oh, oh yes. I, I remember when what you're going to talk about happened and the subsequent blowback of that and the kind of movie it was supposed to be prior to that actually happening. It's, it's a really disturbing story. So I'll be the, intrigued. The initial movie ended up not even being completed in production due to whatever, whatever happened here. So um, the Twilight Zone series started in 1959 and it carried out a cult following like, even till now, there's still people that really like the Twilight Zone, the old school ones. 
1983, a movie production began about a bigoted man who basically travels through time and he gets to kind of see how other people live through different points in history. And like he basically ends up um, in Nazi occupied France at one point and he gets confused as a black man by the KKK in the South. And towards the end, he ends up being in the middle of the Vietnam War. And due to the war scenes, um, there was a helicopter that essentially lost control of its pyrotechnics. And it ended up killing the main actor and two small children. And there were three passengers in the actual helicopter who were kind of injured, but they weren't actually killed. But the, the three main actors of that portion of the movie, or of the two children and the main actor of the movie, actually perished once the helicopter landed down as one child was squished by the helicopter and the main uh, actor and one of the children actually were sliced in half by the blades of the helicopter and all the cameras were currently rolling at that time so it was all caught on camera like clear as day so there's like even though they say they destroyed the footage there's still footage of it actually happening there was some poor second ac your first ac doing his best to get that in focus just yeah, been that way, and that's just happening so quickly. You know, uh, there uh, the whole thing is it, it, you, you can still find it sadly on on YouTube. But yeah, that was Vic Morrow, who he had been in films for a long time, and he's act, Jennifer Jason Lee, actress Jennifer Jason Lee's father, and uh, he was uh, decapitated, and she was really traumatized for a long period of time after that. John Landis was the director for that movie, and he and the the film crew spent years in court over whether or not it was actually their fault that that happened, because he, during the entire production, like, was pushing that he wanted it to be more authentic and more realistic so much that during the war scenes, they actually used real guns and bullets for that whole scene, and that was incredibly dangerous, obviously, but then also during, like, the explosions, they wanted to use real explosives. Um, which, I mean, obviously they do in some movies use actual explosives, but... Yeah, there's the a sense... difference between, like, normal... Sorry, if I can mm-hmm. just interrupt for a second. Normally on a movie, they'll use these, you know, more pyrotechnic kind of for-show explosions, where mm-hmm. it's mostly just, like, a fireball shot straight up kind of thing like that. Yeah. Whereas, like, explosions... static. Yeah, and explosions for combat are, are totally, totally different. different. They're, all, they're shrapnel-based. It's about, like... About damaging right. the area around it as opposed to making it look spectacular. And he enough. wanted the, that real deal stuff. And even the children that were that were killed in the helicopter accident, they weren't even supposed to be on set at that time because no. it was illegal for them to work past a certain time of day. Oh, but because he insisted that the scene had to be shot at night, they were there and just so happened to just get caught in the helicopter accident. Um, yeah, they were threatened with being taken off the movie. They right. weren't going to be available. There were veiled threats to the parents. Mm-hmm. And right. there was always the assumption that there would be no, uh, none of the fireworks that were going off were actually going to be there. Even Vic Morrow, who had been in movies with helicopters prior, uh, he was in a movie called Dirty Mary L- Crazy Larry, this really bad drive-in movie with race cars, where he's in a helicopter and they're like hitting the top of the roof of the car. It's like one of those old kind of uh, 70s chase movies. And he was scared to death of helicopters back then. And so he's like, I don't know if I want to work in this kind of situation. And he was lied to. So they couldn't tell Vic Morrow will fire you. They basically just told him no. And one of the big problems of that explosion, it doesn't even have to be a big explosion, right? We found out with uh, like the crow 
that a blank can kill you. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be a real bullet. Uh, and uh, there was a model named John Eric Hexham who in a, was in a show and he put the gun up to his head and had a blank and he was just playing around. And he shot himself and killed himself. So there is a real impact, even to those fireballs. But what they did was they were shooting too close to a canyon. There was like a canyon that they made look like Vietnam. And so the explosion had nowhere to go but up. And that was one of the things that was the problem is that the, it wasn't just the size of it. It was that it was all going to shoot right at the rotors on those helicopters. And every stunt person and coordinator was just either lied to about where the positioning was going to be, or they were too afraid of Landis at the moment because he was really being demonstrative. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny you actually bring up uh, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, because in that movie, um, Morrow is supposed to fly the helicopter and he actually declined it. He was like, I'm not going to do that because he had had a premonition at some other point in his life that he was going to die because of a hel- helicopter. And so he was like, no, I'm not going to fly that helicopter. And so when this movie ended up happening, he actually wasn't supposed to even be near the helicopter. Like he was near it in the scene, but not like in it or closely by it. So right. the fact that he then died due to the helicopter is pretty wild. And some people even draw like, uh, what is it? Uh, parallels? Parallels, yeah. Because uh, the, the movie in Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry has a song that opens up the movie that's called um, Time or, or Time Starts or whatever. And then the song that's supposed to be playing during the scene that played when the helicopter like ended up crashing was called Time Out. So they're like, oh, yeah, that's like clearly, you know, a whole thing about his death. <laughs> it's it's interesting uh, because there's so much that went on. I don't know if uh, uh, probably in your exhaustive research, you probably saw it. There's a lot of things that you can take a look at. There's a book called Final Cut, which is rather notorious, where uh, a, a journalist followed the entire trial and went back in uh, in the history of what was going on. And it's really damning. I mean, uh, they, they had a show called Cursed Films that was on Shudder. And they talk about this and they really, in my opinion, if anything, even half of what was in that book was true. They kind of gave some leeway to John Landis as uh, not being as uh, responsible as I think he probably was. In the Shutter uh, show, they actually use real footage of the helicopter going down and actually show like what happened. So if anybody who's listening watches that, just be forewarned, like, that's like the first episode of the series, too, is like this incident, and they show actual footage of the helicopter taking out these people. Yeah, I was going to say, unfortunately, that, that's a case relatively often on movie sets uh, when it comes to stunts like this, or just stunts in general, especially back in like the, I don't know, this was the 70s, right? When this movie was made? 83. 83, okay, so this is way later than I thought it was, but still. Uh, I'm trying to think of some other examples. You brought up The Crow a couple seconds ago. That's just another example of like just poor stunt planning, screwing people over. Uh, I remember I wanted to bring up Apocalypse Now if we had time as far as cursed movies go because that had very many similar things where people essentially got maimed or killed. No, I, don't, I don't have the specifics though uh, on, on top of my head, but where people unfortunately got maimed or killed on set because of bad planning. And it was like... I don't know. I don't know John Landis personally, obviously, but like him and his kid aren't really the best people. Uh. Yeah, that's the, one of the things, right? Uh, I was going to say sometimes it's not cursed movies as much as it's cursed people. 
like uh, I would say some of the movies that are cursed are like uh, uh, Bonfire of the Vanities that came out in the 90s. Not a horror movie, but a movie that was based on a, a book that everybody loved. And then they had like Tom Hanks and Bruce Willis as the main characters and they hated each other. And they just tore the movie completely down. The whole thing just uh, it, it doesn't work at all. And so uh, I think with guys like Landis, you know, you get into uh, a spot where you're the box office poison, not the movie. You know, the curse is you can't stop doing things. Uh, Friedkin, you know, for The Exorcist, uh, he's a guy who won an Oscar for taking uh, for uh, the French Connection. And he had no permits. And he got he cursed out the stunt driver to get him angry. And so that entire thing that's known as one of the greatest car chases in the history of film, that camera is being run by a cameraman crawled down into the corner of the, the, the passenger seat. And they're flying and just honking the horn. And there's not one. All the streets are live. And after the fact, he goes, well, you know, that was kind of crazy. And, you know, like you could have killed someone at any given time there. And he learned nothing. He then went to do sorcerer. And had people nearly drown, you know, during a, a monsoon. And uh, The Exorcist, he's like shooting guns off. Well, blanks for sure. But at the same point, he's like putting guns up next to people's heads and pulling the trigger to get them nervous for the scene. So some guys are just like, they'll be, they'll go to these extremes. It's almost like they create the curse themselves. And in a way, isn't that what a curse is in the first place? Mm-hmm. You wrong somebody and boom. And you get wrong. <laughs> yeah. So then um, my second topic is going to be the uh, incomparable tough, the tough. And it's a, it's from a movie that was actually, I'm sorry, it was a book that was published in 1963 by Mordecai Richler, who is a Canadian person. <laughs> and it's a story about an Inuit, a Canadian who moves from Toronto or moves to Toronto. So um, an Inuit is basically an indigenous person who um, lives throughout, like, the Arctic, Greenland, Canada, and around parts of Alaska. Well, I was specifically, they are referenced as Inuits, and uh, I'm not really certain if that's even still the politically correct term for it at this point in time, because, First I mean, the, I mean it's from 1963, so much could be different now than yeah. it is then, so that could totally be politically incorrect at this point in time, and I just don't know it because I'm a dumb white girl, but... Um, <laughs> Um, I apologize if that's the case. So <laughs> he basically is supposed to move to Toronto. It gets worse. So like, don't worry about that so much, but like, it gets worse. Um, he moves to Toronto to try and adjust to new city life and he becomes corrupted and you're supposed to follow him through like this whole corruption process of like him not knowing anything about like the techno- te- technological world at this point and then becoming totally immersed in it. And um, the movie has been attempted multiple times between 1980 and 1999, but it was never able to actually be completed. And the first actor to actually accept the role for the movie was John Belushi. Oh. It was one of the last roles he actually accepted. And, uh, he was, he was accepted for it in 1982. And then he was, uh, within a few months on March 5th was found dead in his hotel room at 33. And it was determined that his death was caused by drugs, most likely known as a speedball, which is like cocaine and heroin. Um, It was determined that the drugs were actually given to him by Catherine Evelyn, who was, I think, his girlfriend at the time, or at least a friend. But she was the one that basically gave it to him. And so she was convicted of first degree murder. 
So then a couple of years go by and they still are trying to make this film. And so the next actor that gets signed on to this film is Sam, Sam Kinison. And he ended up working eight whole days filming for this movie. And he, at that time, decided that he wanted to take creative control. And he took so much control that he ended up getting put into a lawsuit over whether or not he could actually change certain things within the script. And during that lawsuit, um, just as the negotiations began at 38 years old, he was involved in a head-on collision by a pickup truck driven by a drunk 17-year-old. And while he was in the car, he began talking to himself and he had his brother in the car with him. And like his brother basically says like, he just kept talking about how he doesn't want to die and like, but why, why do I have to die? Okay, okay, fine. And then after about 10 minutes of that, he just became unconscious and they weren't able to revive him on the scene. And when they went and did the autopsy, he had died due to internal injuries from the crash. So it's just like every time somebody else gets this this role, you know, it ends badly. So then in 1994, the role is offered to John Candy. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's just, just yeah. great, fantastically just terrible people. So in March, of, in March of 1994, and if you're seeing a pattern, it's always in March that they get the offer. Um, yeah. And they take it, and then something happens. In March of 1994, while working in Mexico, he had a heart attack at 43 years old. And Candy, at that time, once he had actually gotten the role, he asked a friend of his, Michael O'Donoghue, to actually join the cast. And as O'Donoghue joined the cast, he passed away in November of that year due to a brain hemorrhage at 54. So then, we go to 1997. Oh, my God. Where the role was offered to Chris Farley. <laughs> oh, wow. And what? he accepted, though at 33, just a few months after reading the script, he was found dead in his apartment and hit oh, by his little brother. And much like Belushi, who was no, one of his like, it was one of his like idols. He uh, he was uh, he died due to an overdose of uh, from a speedball. Didn't they both die in the Hancock Building too? Because I know Chris Farley died in the Hancock Building. No, uh, no, uh, Chateau Marmont, Chateau Marmont. That's where Belushi died. Oh, that's where Belushi died. died. Yeah, yeah well, one of the bungalows. Yeah, sorry, I had to mix up that. One's a hotel, one's a hotel. True. Yes. No, I, I get that. Uh, Farley also, like Andy, had actually asked a friend to read, his, read the script and possibly join it as well. Um, and he asked his friend Phil Hartman to read the script. And five months after Farley passed, he was murdered by his own wife, who gave, like, he basically at that time had given his wife an ultimatum. He was like, if you start using drugs again, I'm going to leave and I'm going to take the kids. And she kind of like lost it and shot him twice in the head and once in the side. And then when she realized what she did, she panicked and drove to a friend's house and told her friend about it. And her friend was like, no, you didn't. And she's like, yeah. So then her and her friend drove back to the house and went inside. Her friend saw that Bill was on the floor and freaked out and called the cops. And then while the cops were on their way, her friend had like taken the kids out of the house and his wife basically went back inside the house, went into the bathroom and shot herself in the head. And so uh, the police ended up having to take the children and give them a new home. Wow. So this movie, this movie hasn't been touched since that point. And some, some believe that it might be actual spirits of Inuits that are causing the curse for the movie because they keep trying to have Really fat white men try to play them. Right. <laughs> that is the one at the top of the game, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like disruptive to their culture. 
Yeah. It definitely was a common thing. Not just fat white men, but also like every one of those dudes was a notorious drug addict, a notorious yeah. just like bombastic personality of a, of a character mm-hmm. or a person. Yeah, the only person who wasn't uh, uh, was John Candy, but he was sure. obviously uh, out of shape and you know overweight and stuff. But I think that's that's something you have to look at, right? Who do they typecast for these things? Who do they ask? They have to go for a certain type, right? They continue to go for it's kind of like there was a book called Confederacy of Dunces. There's this character named Ignatius P. O'Reilly, and the guy is. A, a guy who lives in his mom's basement, basically, and is 400-some pounds. So you're not going to get James Woods <laughs> to be that character or anything. You're going to ask a certain group of people. And I think every one of the folks that got involved with that, to a certain degree, were in these moments. Like you talked about uh, uh, Sam Kinison. Uh, I'm going to take this script. and oh, He's so heavily into drugs at that point. He's like megalomaniacal. You know? So he's high as a kite. And you know that fall can happen at any given moment. Him and Belushi, Farley taking hero worship just a little bit too far. Uh, by the time they're offered this, and I, I would assume that this is like one of those things that you get offered when you have a couple movies that didn't do so well. Because this is one of those things that hasn't been made, right? It's been in development hell for... 20 some years so uh, or more uh, by that time so it's there's something that is keeping it from being a major thing getting through there uh and so my thought is you probably get it in front of people like farley and stuff at a time when they really need to make a movie and do it like the movie that uh belushi was also signed to he was in the midst of doing was called uh, noble rot it was all about wine and I think he was going to be working with uh, Ackroyd on that. Dan Ackroyd, they were good friends. And uh, he just, you know, so sometimes also that's another thing about these kind of deals. You might be connected to eight movies at any given moment, but you only get to do one. Only one gets through the lawyers. Only one gets an agreement. But your name can be connected to a bunch of things. You can have a, a pile of scripts. And you may be ready to do all of them. But they, they don't come through. So uh, maybe all those guys also, there's like eight scripts that have big, fat white guys <laughs> that are funny that jump up and down. It's like they all get the same script. It's like, here you go. Here you so, go. So it could be something like that. So you're saying it's like a kind of a balance of probability there. All these guys are wearing the, a point in their life where they needed like this role. And also they were unfortunately afflicted by right either poor health or or you know getting too much into right um drug lifestyle and everything and it's so just balance of probability like worked out uh, of course morbidly in the end and they all die <laughs> right because uh, well it could be that it's still like the, the ideas the inuit are like on yeah fuck these guys but uh, <laughs> yeah. i i think i think in a way you do have to kind of look at uh just you know, here I am. I'm the guy who talks about ghosts and monsters all the time. Yet at a certain point, I I, uh, I can't help but look at these things and go, because uh, they're real people, right? So uh, that changes my mind on do I want to take a look at it as being all about ghosts or do I want to look at, look at what it might be occasionally? And for something like this, uh, this is a lot. Of, that's a big body count for one movie that's not even made. That's just a damn script. Uh, and you have things like Phil Hartman and the weird thing of a brain tumor for O'Donohue, 
uh, guys that all worked on Saturday Night Live. Maybe Saturday Night Live is cursed. I think every one of those guys, except for John Candy, worked on Saturday Night Live, and he worked on SCTV, and that was a Canadian version of Saturday Night Live. So maybe oh, yeah, something, yeah. SNL maybe definitely something cursed. That. Yeah, as an elf could be cursed by now, by God. With oh, yeah. 50 yeah, years, it it essentially thing. is. It's just cursed in a different manner. It curses their careers. <laughs> right, right. But I, but I think because uh, uh, just this property being about what it's about, you know, having the kind of character actor that you're going to look for, uh, you might have more of a coincidental death thing. But still, I mean, it's, it's a lot of stuff. It's like The Exorcist. A bunch of things happen on The Exorcist. Things happened on um, uh, Apocalypse Now that was brought up. Apocalypse Now shot for over a year. Yeah. Yeah. And you think about how many things can happen, how many grandparents can die, how many people can get sick, how many babies are born uh, in that time period for a movie that has maybe 150 people on stat at any given moment. Uh, and just a cast of characters that was at least in the 20s, 30s, uh, you know, main people on the roll sheet every day. Uh, so that amount of time can definitely be something that can make it look like, wow, this this movie has a major body count on it. I think there is a major difference, though, in seeing, like, hundreds of people on one set and, like, maybe grandparents dying or someone getting an accident. And, like, there being a difference between common, everyday things happening and daily occurrences of something negative happening every day that right. normally causes a film to get branded as cursed. Because it's not just, like, oh, you know, like, five different people's grandparents died and, like, that one guy died and then so on and so forth. You know, like my dog got hit by a car and now that movie's cursed. It's like, it's very specific to where it's either really specific things happen, actions that continue to happen to different people, or, you know, obviously deaths occurring because of certain things in that movie. Or even there have been people that have like haunted type experiences in certain movies, like even in The Exorcist, where they actually believed that some of the characters ended up becoming uh, possessed by a demon because of the things that they were talking about because some people actually believe that the books and things that they were reading in that movie were real and caused there to be a, a portal opened up and causing there to actually be an evil spirit that cursed yeah. the film essentially like that is one of the best examples of this honestly Just well so is Poltergeist Poltergeist as well yeah, yeah. Poltergeist yeah. has a really bad history too and is usually seen as a haunted cursed film as well because yeah. especially with well, the main little girl who passes away. And the- Dominic Dunn, who gets uh, killed by her boyfriend. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there are people that think that the actual set in itself was haunted as well. I, I love The Exorcist as like ground zero for this stuff. And I think it makes a lot of sense because uh, The Exorcist, maybe not as noticeable now in a, uh, you know, after 40 some years, but that that movie hitting in a very secular time period, uh, the Vietnam War and everything happening, uh, that was the first movie that really kind of challenged uh, God on a realistic way, like uh, religion and where people were with it. And talking at a time when uh, family values in that fashion were kind of falling apart. So there was a hit right at people's belief systems with that movie. And there was a lot of fear around it. I remember reading it as a kid because i couldn't see the movie i was in a uh my parents were in a fundamentalist christian cult that thought the world was going to end in 1975 and they believed demons were everywhere right so i grew up with the, the thing of like 
people sitting at the house going, oh, yeah, I saw a demon on the bus the other day. And I'm like, and I'm believing the shit out of this because I'm like seven. And so uh, the exodus was like the scariest thing. And there were people who were full adults that were believing it. And there are papers written about how people responded to the exorcist, like psychological papers, because there were people who spoke in tongues in the theater, fainted, all sorts of stuff, because they were coming in thinking, you know, people used to wear crucifixes. They pull out their crucifixes while they're getting their ticket. They're still going. And it's almost like a challenge of faith, I guess. But there were people who were uh, having all of these crazy things that were happening. I think why that movie works so well on that is it's something that I think you can't really prove, disprove the idea of demonic possession. Uh, but you also had someone who was pretty much an atheist making the film or agnostic, at least. And you had a guy who was a Jesuit who wrote it. And the two of them kind of had this clash that worked very well in making the movie morally ambiguous. It never says, and yes, there is a God. It never says, and there is no God. Instead, it creeps you out by having you constantly guessing all the way to the very end. And I know that William Peter Blatty was angry almost to the day he died in how that movie ends because he always felt that it said that the devil won because uh, the priest jumps out of the window and stuff. And there was a, a constant argument about that. But there were things like uh, uh, to make that movie even crazier than it was already just from watching it. The editing style that they used, that was one of the first times that they had back masking, which is people speaking in reverse. And that was in the audio and the soundtrack. And people were like saying, I'm getting hit by subliminal messages. And they also had the editing that was being done. They would put like two or three uh, uh, frames of a face staring at you. And they ended up having to take those out because a guy convulsed and broke his nose in the theater. And they got taken, Warner Brothers got taken to, to uh, court about it. And they settled out of court because they're like, we don't need the headaches of what this is going to become. But they were like, did you put in these frames? We don't know yet psychologically what those uh, hidden frames might do. And uh, Friedkin said, yes, we had this thing. We just wanted to have the space getting closer and closer to freak you out. And uh, I got freaked out by that because back when the video uh, back in VHS days, the earliest versions of that VHS tape still had, they had to add extra frames of those three frames. They had the old three frame. So I was sitting there watching the movie after having a surgery and I couldn't move out of the friend's house. And I'm slowly, you know, used to be able to go frame by frame on these old VHS tapes. I just saw this flash. And so I'm like, oh, okay. And it's what everybody knows is the demon Pazuzu now, the guy with the white face and the black, you know. Now it's really common, but nobody knew what that looked like because they had not yet added the frames so you could see it with the naked eye. And so I had this on there and it immediately, for as much as I, you know, I can be a critic and, you know, I can uh, use logic and all of this stuff, I got scared shitless. I'm looking at this thing. I'm going, this is the creepiest damn thing I've ever seen. Why would anybody do this? This is definitely like the work of the devil. And, and I think that that movie, you can't help but look at it and and see a uh, curse or uh, your tempting fate. So anytime like the, the set caught on fire, you know, that's a pretty good one. You know, things like that. Yeah, oh, yeah. people died. All sorts of stuff happened on The Exorcist. So you can't help but say, oh, is that... Uh, a curse or we tempting fate uh but there's a really good documentary about this called fear of god 
And mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't know where you might be able to find it. It was on the DVDs. It was an extra on the DVDs back around 2000. And it's done by a British film critic, Mark. Uh, oh, my goodness. I'm going to forget his name now. But anyway, they talked to every, uh, everybody who's still alive, William Peter Blatty, uh, and uh, probably most important, Max von Sydow, because you had people like Ellen Burstyn, you had uh, William Friedkin, and if you follow William Friedkin over the decades, you'll see a guy who changes his story for whatever's going to be sensationalistic at the time. He was an atheist. Now he's, uh, he's an ex-Jew who's now a Catholic. You know, he's all these things. And he at one decade, he's saying there's nothing about spirituality, uh, nothing to religion in this movie. And then another one, you go, oh, we did have a few really dangerous things happen. And, you know, so you have this bit where dependent upon who's talking, they realize that there is energy to be had in kind of pumping some of this up. And then you have somebody like Max von Sydow, who's like, this is all bullshit. Man, I was on this set. I was on like 500 movies in my time. And, you know, I've had people die in like 60% of them <laughs> and stuff like that. You know, Jesus, I, played, I played Jesus in uh, The Greatest Story Ever Told. Yeah, Max von Sydow is one of the greatest actors of all time, one of the most accomplished people of all time and on screen. And yeah. uh, he's just been, I guess, around the block more than almost any other filmmaker. If he says the stories are bullshit, I mean, I would absolutely believe him over almost anybody. Uh, even though I've obviously never met him personally, but just because, you know, that dude's been around the block more than anybody has. But I love the belief of it, right? Oh, yes. I mean, it may, the an- energy of the exorcist begs me to want to believe in everything that that has happened on there, right? And I think that that's great. And I don't think that there's major issues with that at all. Uh, I, a little, I worry a little bit about the, uh, the, the stuff that goes on with the poltergeist story, because there's so much about this poor little girl who died. And uh, the family never gets really rest from it. You know, they have to live with the idea that it's become an urban legend and it's become this thing that everybody talks about. And it's like uh, the, camp- the campfire story. They have a really interesting thing in that movie, that documentary, Cursed Films, where they talk to people who were on the movie, like Gary Sherman, I think, who made the third one. And, uh, and he was like, I really I get angry when I hear people talking about that. I knew the family because I yeah, knew the people like who were involved. Milking the death to the child, basically. Yeah, there's kind of uh, there's a difference between uh, stuff that was like happening on The Exorcist, where you're like, "Wow, that's kind of yeah. crazy," and even it's stuff just like with a... adults, right? But there yeah. is something about uh, kind of I, I wouldn't say milking it, but there's a, maybe an unhealthy fascination that uh, kind of gets in the way with yeah. with. Um, also, I think kind of personally, if you're gonna you have poltergeist two, one, two, and three, and it's like if you're going to be upset that someone is talking about the supposed curse from the original two movies and everything with the little girl dying because she she's in the second one, and then that's when the accident happens and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is still that third one that came out, and then there even the remakes and stuff. I don't really think that it's really viable to be upset if someone thinks that there's a cursed issue going on there when they're still doing a production for a movie that obviously had a fatality of their main person from the cast that had carried over in the first two movies. And you're still milking it in that sense. Like, like now you even have this like snowball effect that people are going to go see it because this movie now also has the undertelling of that little girl dying. Yeah. Well, so, I will agree uh, to that. Like I certainly agree to that. Because of that. It's like the yeah. strike sign effect. Like they're just kind of, they're just kind of like, uh, you know, they're like, 
like they say, don't talk about it, but then they just keep making, yeah, making more, more films. And yeah. Well, I agree with that. I think that there is something to be said about why are they still making poltergeists? Uh, well, it could be because the first movie was such an iconic thing. Uh, but there's always a thing of, uh, there's no bone left on the chicken, right? Or, I mean, they no just think the director the of the third one that tried to be like, I knew the family and like, it makes me mad when people say things. You're literally directing a third movie that's going to also affect that family. Right, okay. like their child may yeah. not be in that third one, but the first two movies included her, and that third one is also riding off the back of her dying. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, no, I can see There's, that. It's she nothing else. The they are using exploitable. It like yeah. the end of it. But it was it was during the third. It wasn't during the production of the second one. No, it was during the second one. Oh, it was during the second one. Yeah. That she died. Okay, yeah. never mind. She's not in up. the third. One. I had it mixed up. Yeah, yeah, she died. She died in the second one, I believe. I mean, they had she footage of her. By like uh, something, something on set crushed her. I've heard about this, but I don't think I remembered enough of it to. to I definitely I have it on the list. But, but uh, I was trying to bring up a point with that and tie it into something about the crow, but I totally forgot what it was. <laughs> so uh, I'm not. Well, well, I think that, if it comes back to me, I'll interrupt. Yeah. Well, I think the uh, the crow is an interesting one too because you have Brandon Lee and you uh, his father dies uh, in mysterious ways. And of course, Brandon gets shot. And I think it's real. It's such a weird thing, right? We talk about this and in a way. It's kind of a sensitive subject and in a way it's an insensitive subject because the crow is remembered because it was kind of cool. And you had this guy who could have been something and he dies on it. It's like the thing that happened with James Dean. James Dean yeah, made absolutely. three movies. Call following of a movie, like. Yeah, I, I don't mean to talk smack about the crow because I do really like the movie, but it's not. It, it wasn't a movie that would have blown anybody out of the water had there not been the publicity around it. Yeah, and it the actual person who uh, this is like kind of an awkward thing, but the publicist was a professor of mine when I was in film school, oh. and uh, I remember someone bringing it up to him in class, like just asking him at the end of class something about the crow, and you could just see this dude's face just dot like boo, like it's just whole. Yeah. His whole demeanor went just so down the drain. He was like, I really, I'm not comfortable talking. I don't want to deal with it. I guess, like, it, it clearly affects the people on the set, too. But when movies are made and something happens during the production, like, it, it's a product with X amount of money invested in it. And the people who are investing that money, the producers, the investors, so to speak, are going to want to return on that no matter what. So they're, they're going to force this fucking film crew, this poor film crew, through all those tragedies to just continue to work and work their way around it. Like, think about how, in The Crow, how they had to use a stunt double to shoot a lot of the scenes. Right. Because he was dead. And they did the same thing with, uh, this is a bit of a tangent, with that Fast and Furious movie when Paul Walker died. Oh, uh, right? yeah. Yeah. And it, it's these things that, like, yeah, you could call them disrespectful all you want, but it is, at the end of the day, mostly a business decision with that shit. Right. Yeah. In a certain way, it's show must go on, you know, where yeah. where it can happen. I mean, and, and, you know, you can go back and forth on that kind of thing because there's a lot of people who work on stuff. It's kind of like movies that uh, are being um, uh, kind of attacked because of the person who's in charge. Uh, that's a big star or a big part of it uh, is has done something really terrible. And then there's a the thing of everybody who worked on it is now. Oh, yeah, kind of, yeah. I, I like to think of it like. You got to watch what you're in, involved with because I don't. Do you guys remember Enron? Like the whole Enron yeah. thing. 
Like uh, there are, there must have been thousands of people who are so proud to have Enron on their resume that that was an open door to the next job because at one point Enron was the greatest thing to be involved with. Kind of like Miramax. At one point, being involved with Miramax was like, wow, that's a that's the darling man. That, they're they're going up against stuff. Yeah, they're controversial people now. Enron, you know, if you say that, you've got to give you've got to go to the bar afterwards and tell a long story that you don't want to tell. You know, and the same thing if you work with Miramax. So it's really interesting when that kind of thing happens, where uh, you know the show must go on. Uh, and yes, I mean, there's a lot of people who can lose their livelihood over just you know. I was my first job. It was a movie that got shut down because something happened on the set. Uh, but then there's the also the thing of we kept going, and I never felt dirtier in my life than having a stuntman running around trying to be Brandon Lee. You know, and we're we're all pretending that this movie is more important than what, what actually happened. That's a, a a mindset some people had, and other people did not. You know, I think it really comes down to the person who's involved in it, and and how we, you know, with film, it's just it makes itself the mesmerization that we have watching a movie in the first place, the the idea that it's taking us to a world that is not the world that we are in. We cannot help but be mesmerized and invested in it. And some of us, like maybe all the weirdos in this room, <laughs> are people who are thoroughly invested in, in the cinema that they watch. And so we can't help but ask the who, what, where's, and why's. We can't help but take a look at these things a little bit closer. And at times, you know, maybe we're, 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 we're tasteless about it. Uh, and at other times, maybe it's the question that has to be asked. I mean, you're talking about uh, your, your, your professor, uh, John Landis has been, you know, he's notorious for walking away if somebody starts to bring up anything about, like even 1982 or 1981, he starts talking about, you know, early 80s, it's like, where are you going with this? Because he went to court and he was uh, pilloried. But, you know, the weird thing is he still had a career. He's probably made more movies since The Twilight Zone than he made before The Twilight Zone. And none of them may have been big hits, but he worked with a lot of people. A lot of big names, you know, so, uh, you know, he he continued to work, whereas yeah, many his, people didn't. Yeah, his Wikipedia page barely mentions Twilight Zone. Yeah. yeah I mean, well, he's if, it, you know. if you think about just to bring up another cursed movie, uh, Rosemary's Baby, the director of that is one of the other worst people of all time kind of thing. Yeah. He just kind of yeah. gets glossed over because of his career. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Polanski and Allen. Yeah. He didn't really make a whole lot more after that, though, after he left the country. He did make yeah. a few French films, but he's not nearly right. as popular There's as There's a lot was. of people who, for some reason, are like part of some, let's do them allowed back in the country coalition. Yeah, like you that. know, it's a lot of ASU film students that are in that kind of cult. Yeah. That's 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 a pedigree I seem to know a lot of people in. So uh, uh, to bring it back to a point that was made a little bit earlier, um, you were talking about the energy that can come from being on set and like from these curses and stuff like that. But I bring up the uh the Blair Witch. Um, movie that was released in the 90s. Now, that movie was obviously a fictional movie and everything like that, but there is a lot of people who believe that the Blair yeah. Witch actually has been manifested into the forest that the movie was originally created for due to just straight belief of so many people. 
there's a lot of tulpa. Yeah, kind of. There's a lot of lore that ties back into like history of people just believing in things and that essentially being enough to create fear, which then makes this thing feel real to anyone that hears about it. And so there is a legitimate fear that the curse of the Blair Witch is a real thing because so many people have put their own belief and energy into it. That's kind of like the plot to uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, which is so many people love Freddy Krueger that he left the movie and became in the reality of the world. Uh, I think that's something that has been talked about uh, since ancient religions, that giving something energy, giving something power uh, can bring it into our, our realm. I think it's funny that that would happen with uh, the Blair Witch, which I think is, I still think is a masterpiece. Uh, I think that that was an experimental film and people got mad because they believed it was real because it was one of the first films that ever used that kind of uh, viral advertising. Yeah. Yeah. Well, found footage is one thing, but it was the viral campaign that was on the internet. Nobody knew about it. It was 1999, yeah. and they just started putting this stuff up. It didn't say, you know, it didn't say copyright, you know, whatever artists and films. Yeah. Uh, it, it was just like, hey, take a look at this stuff. And this was from students. And they just show little clips. So before, kind of like The Exorcist back in 1973, people are having histrionics in the waiting line. In the line to get into the movie, you're psyching yourself out. It's like getting ready to go into a haunted house. You're like freaking yourself out in line. And that's what was happening with people at the Blair Witch. Uh, what was, and that's the magic of cinema. People are like, oh, well, it's a cheat. I'm not, no, there's movies like uh, High Tension's a cheat, where all of a sudden one person has a twin. That's a fucking cheat. On the other hand, having you have, uh, you know, a movie happening and you're reading in whatever is being done because the movie is shaky and ambivalent and won't tell you what the answer is, is what cinema is all about. Uh, paranormal Activity is another one. The first Paranormal Activity, that's like a great silent film. Uh, I mean, you're just, the camera's still, and your eyes are going <laughs> all over, waiting to see what the fucking thing is that's going to happen this time. And that is like true audience participation. You are, you are sucked in. Uh, and so I think um, that's uh, kind of with the Blair Witch, uh, why I think that that has the power that it does is because before the movie even opened, there was already like this ritual. We were all in this crazy satanic ritual already that we didn't know about while looking on the Internet and trying to find out who these people were. And it wasn't even a real place. You know, Blair, Blair isn't a place. It's Berkeleyville, right? And and so, uh, but with all of this happening, uh, I can see that, like, for me, and I'm sure everybody in this room, there's probably a haunted house in your hometown. There's probably a place that you shouldn't go. There's probably a woods that you don't want to go to. Or there's like, there's crazy people down there. You know, whatever it is, there's a spot that is the cautionary tale. And that's as old as wine. And I think that that happens because something happens somewhere. But we don't even know the story anymore, you know, and it could have been a made up story. It could, like I come from the coal mines of Pennsylvania. And it's interesting how all the old lore was about mines that caved in. And you can hear the voice of people who died in the mines. So it's almost like we have an, a, a municipal grief and a municipal guilt that we allowed people to go down into the ground without any kind of protection and choke on fucking coal dust. 
and then there's an explosion and they die. And so there are areas in that uh, in my hometown that if you go, you're going to see a ghost. If you go, you're going to you might not come back. And I think that uh, Blair Witch is uh, kind of a uh, an international version of that. We have people from all over the world that know about this scary place and all that energy that's there. And if I lived there, I'd probably try and propagate that and start a a, a, a t-shirt stand. <laughs> well, uh, a quick question for you because you brought up being from a, a like a Pennsylvania mining area. Do you think they're ever going to make a good Silent Hill movie? Oh, well, geez. I'll tell you what, the original Silent Hill movie, uh, there are good moments in it. Absolutely. I, I agree with the you visuals that. are like, uh, there's a couple really jaw dropping moments, but I have no idea. There's something I think that came out. There's a new found footage film that's out that you can get on Amazon and stuff. I, I wish I could remember the name, but I just saw a thing and I went, Oh shit, they're doing, uh, Centralia. They're doing the Centralia mine fire. And I think it's called something like uh, the devil in the ground or something. And so it's uh, it's something where they go uh, a bunch of kids, as usual, go in a film students, go into this area that you're not supposed to go to, like Chernobyl Diaries is another one. And uh, so you uh, the, they're in there and all of a sudden like, what was that? And so a lot of real quick cuts. And then you see smoke coming out of the ground. And uh, yeah, I hope they do. The Centralia itself is a great horror story. There are still people there who, in cognitive dissonance, have fought the government to stay there, even though the fire is coming up out of the ground. And, the, and so the city, the town of Centralia, there's like 53 people left or something like that. Uh, they're grandfathered in. When they die, nobody gets on that land, but they won't push them out. And yet... It's like this thing of like, why would you want to stay in hell? I mean, literally like in hell, because this place, uh, houses were falling into the ground. It's been going for like 80 years, that fire. And I visited it. You can't even get near it now. But you would be out there and you could just feel it. Like, what the hell is going on underneath the ground? You'd see smoke coming up here and there. And you would just smell like tar. You know, smell like the tar just kind of. Yeah. So I hope they do. Uh, I think Silent Hill, as uh, the concept of Silent Hill, is scary as shit. I, I love that idea. So I hope they do make a movie. I hope they just keep trying until they get uh, some of these ideas right, you know, uh, like uh, Resident Evil. I'd like to see Resident Evil done where <laughs> it's scary, right? I mean, when that first came out, I was, when role-playing games like that, uh, single RPGs were just coming out, that was like one of the big ones. And I remember having this moment where I, you know, I, I used to play Pac-Man and stuff. And all of a sudden I'm in a horror movie. And I remember actually being scared in my living room. And that was thoroughly new and unique. I'm like going real slow around the corner. Like, what the fuck? What the fuck? And I'm not even like, you know, it's not like it is now. Uh, like uh, having virtual uh, reality games and stuff. That's that's crazy to me. But uh, I know my imagination went out out. The first time something jumped at me, I jumped. I was like, if you can make that happen in a movie, that's going to be a winner. You know, uh, but uh, I don't know how you would do that. Because but like a VR movie? movie, maybe a VR movie. I think uh. I think there's I think that the future of horror or future of movies. And I think horror will push it forward, either horror or porn. 
one of the two. But uh, the internet. It's probably porn and then horror. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why we got VHS so cheap, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> home home video became that because of because of porn mostly. But uh, the, the 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 idea of maybe taking how we play games online now and somehow getting that where it works on the the idea of cinema. Because mm-hmm. so much of film now, if you watch a Marvel Universe film, it feels like a video game because so much of the background isn't there. It's really being, and The Mandalorian was kind of shot in that way. They had it where it was thoroughly green screened all the way around and they had so much processing power that the backgrounds were actually being built as they were moving around. It's like this whole new revolutionary way of oh, shooting. Oh yeah, they got these these LED walls that sort yes. of move with... Uh... They essentially just simulate a live background. Yeah, so it's like this live. Uh, who knows? Maybe there's a way that you could have the audience start to really change the narrative on you. And what does that do to the filmmaker at that point? But that would be where you would be unhinged, right? Because we all know the, the cliches. We all know. Well, here we go. It's that time of the movie where the lights aren't going to work. Oh, oh, he's holding up his phone. They must not have connectivity. You know, all of that kind of stuff is in every movie. But what if you had some way to break that fourth wall in a way where the audience is suddenly like, oh, shit, we're in here. We're kind of responsible for what's going to happen next. And at that moment, with your hand just lightly on the steering wheel, maybe there'd be something that could be really interesting. I could yeah. just see people fighting in a cinema like everybody trying. Well, hold on. What's the oh, it was like a group decision sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. some kind of weird group decision. Do we kill I, everyone? I was going to argue that... uh in some sense, a lot of games now have become that as far as like a lot of narrative video games. Uh, yeah. I think of some examples off the top Telltale of Telltale games. Yeah, Telltale games. Like they had a Walking Dead series and a Batman yeah. series, I think. Things like Wolf uh, Among Us. Uh, what was that last one you said? A Wolf Among Us, I think. Isn't that what? Oh, another Telltale one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, things like great. Last of Us or uh, Last of Us. some Uncharted games. Things like there's things like that that are very story based, where decisions you make along the way affect the outcome, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah, uh, I think that might fit exactly what you're talking about as far as like it's a cinema experience that you as a viewer are controlling or well, or, or Netflix, inside of. Netflix has been playing with that, where they have a couple yeah. of movies where you actually choose. Oh, they like, choose your yeah, yeah, yeah. Black Mirror, yeah, Black Mirror, Bandersnatch. Did it. They, they did have that. a couple other movies that did it too. Yeah, I'd be interested to see. I mean, uh, kind of like 3D. It could be considered nothing but a gimmick. But I think that there's something to be said about uh, there's been this weird marriage. Where are we going to go with technology next? Like uh, the guys that made horror movies in the 80s and 90s, they were inspired by only a couple things. They're inspired by movies that came before them. They were inspired by books and plays, basically. And so... Now we've got so much of a multiverse of different technologies that really affect our lives. You know, things that are on YouTube, uh, live. We're doing Zoom now. I watched that that movie host, which is actually really good. Uh, it's such a simple idea, which you've heard a million times. Hey, let's have a seance. But they played with what the limitations are of Zoom and how we take in visual information and turn it into something that was really interesting. And every actor was responsible for their filming, right? Because it, they were all quarantined. So they're all across areas of London and they're shooting this uh, by uh, doing their piece and then timing it all and editing it all together. And so I think it's, it's, it's only, it only makes sense that at some point we have to have another branch of what inspires film. 
and cinema. And it just doesn't have to stay in the old-fashioned ways. Uh, and that's what I think about. Uh, that's why I'm thinking about how do we get the experience of video games? Because that's the thing, right? I think video games have been pushing the language of cinema in the direction that it's been going as yeah. much as like Game of Thrones did for yeah. fantasy films and stuff. You have this whole thing of where, uh, I mean, they're, they're trying to make all, of, all the video games into movies, right? And they've been doing that, but they're taking it seriously now. Whereas, I mean, back in the 80s, they had like Super Mario Brothers and stuff. They oh were not God, taking that seriously. Fantastic. Come on. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> movie. Take, yeah. Take, 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 take all, gave his all to that performance yeah. as Luigi. Come on. <laughs> I love it. Um, I love it. Yeah, I can I can definitely see that uh, uh, VR cinema is definitely going to take off because, I mean, uh, right now, I don't know if you heard of it, but there are like VR concerts. I mean, right with the pandemic and the lockdowns and everything, a lot of concerts have been done online, but uh, they're having people that integrate it. I don't know the exact app, but it's some VR app that if you have like an Oculus uh, or any of the all the all the other ones, um, you can go to the concert and the performers will be right there and you'll be like in the front row with like a lot of other fake right audience members and you could just look around as much as you want and you can basically posers. be there. Yeah. Posers. <laughs> you can be there right virtually. And uh, I think that that will probably take off, uh, you know, probably there'll be like a VR cinema like you were talking about, but a lot of it will probably be virtual. You could do it from your home. And then, you know, instead of the movie theater only having, having the capacity of like maybe a hundred people max, this would have like thousands of people probably. Think um, of the curse. Think of the curse that can happen now, Dalton, right? I mean, yeah, now you can't take it off. Oh, yeah. You're stuck in there. Yep, you're stuck oh, in there. And you got a oh, serial killer. There's like a, a bunch and of neo Nazis come into the movie theater and they change the, the, the thing and we're oh, yeah, yeah. ultimate reality or a serial killer. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think. Your brain in, like, no, you're uh -huh. just yes. going to sit in a movie theater. You're going to put on the headset. You're going to think you're like watching the movie. You're like, wow, this feels so realistic. And realistically, you actually just loaded yourself onto a trailer and you're being driven thousands of miles away. <laughs> uh -huh. That would be awesome. See, we've, we're writing it. I don't know if that would be very awesome. You take off the headset and realize that you've been kidnapped. <laughs> Somebody copyright this. We got to copyright this. Yeah. <laughs> that we can have. And, and I feel horrible because I've taken us so far away from cursed films. So let's get back <laughs> oh, to cursed wait, films. I, I still have, this, is, this is part of our journey. I still have a comment. So then to summarize, uh, the, I think there's just uh, an interactive media spectrum, I guess. So on the left-hand side, you have the video games that are fully interactable, like any decision you make will affect you in the end. Then uh, you move a little bit to the right, you have the video games that have like a linear story. The in decisions you make don't really affect right your the way the, the ending uh, happens. However, right, you can still play, there's still gameplay, right? Then in uh, probably two thirds of the way to the right, you will have basically the VR films, which you can like experience uh, the you know like the story that's being played out you can't there's no gameplay you just kind of see it happening in front of you and you can move around and stuff maybe and then on the far right is basically every film in existence now where it's a truly linear experience and the cinematographer everyone chooses the way you look at it so that's probably that's what I'm seeing at least developing here yeah, uh, we're, kind of we're, we're just missing that two thirds point basically yeah that's kind of interesting I like that and uh, I think. What I what is interesting is that no matter how technical we get on this, no matter how fine we may have to split hairs, it still comes down to our primal need to watch, right? I mean, why are we talking about cursed films? 
that's very primal. That doesn't have anything to do with aspect ratios. It doesn't have anything to do with box office. It has to do with we are engaged in something and the train derailed. Why did it derail? Why is that just as interesting? You know, and it is. You know, the, the story behind the story is still really exciting. And uh, I think for some movies, it just adds to the, uh, the ambiance or the legend. I mean, you're literally, if you're there, like I saw Jaws when it was in the movie theater and watching everybody having heart attacks. I mean, we were jumping because of the reputation of the movie in the first sequence, which is just the, the word Jaws comes up and there's, it's just the camera going through the water. But some seaweed hits the lens and everybody goes, <laughs> as if. Like the shark isn't going to jump into the third row and start chomping on people. But we're already caught up in this like almost mystical thing that's happening. If you're there when a movie is born, when it's like Rocky, when Rocky first came out, nobody knew about it. It ended up winning Best Picture, became one of the biggest franchises everywhere. But it was a low budget movie that nobody knew about. And then it got word of mouth because everybody was so freaked out at how cool it was. Because most movies were downers at the time. Then you had this movie that made you feel good. When you're watching that movie for the first time, nobody knows what it's going to be. And it pops this magic on you. You're part of the story now. You are helping build this legend. The legend is being created. This is King Arthur's Court, but it's for a movie. And you go and you talk to your friends. You go, did you see that movie? Holy cow, did you see what happened? Like Alien. When Alien came out, the chestburster, nothing like that in the movies. Nobody's telling their friends. They're just going, go see the movie. When they go to the dining table, get ready. And it's like, what are you talking about? And it's like, holy shit. You know, so you have these things that almost are precious gems that we use to get to the next person that's going to watch this thing. We build this reputation. And so sometimes the reputation is tragic. And I think that's part of the cursed films thing. Uh, we uh, Whether there's a true curse or not is almost immaterial you know we can look at what the uh, uh that um you know max von Cito is saying ah fuck it all and uh, other guys are saying oh no it's absolutely real and i was possessed and, you know my dental work didn't work you know all this weird stuff that might be said doesn't really matter uh because we are creating a curse you know yeah. by our by the nature of how we speak about it I have a question. Uh, did the Exorcist films, like the ones afterwards, have the same reputation as the first one? No. That's what's funny. And Except Exorcist 3 didn't have like a reputation of being... Uh, it was just considered really cool and scary but uh, and a good horror movie, but it didn't have anything of like people feeling as if they're, they're uh, possessed and stuff. What was interesting is when you see hysterias happen, like you mentioned Roman Polanski before, and anytime I talk about Roman Polanski, I like to, instead of the or, I do the and statement. I think anytime you bring up Roman Polanski, you can say he's a brilliant filmmaker and he's an asshole and he did terrible things and he raped a girl. I think both of those are equal to say at any given time. Nothing wrong with that. And so I still get to bring up Roman Polanski, but I always have to preface it with oh boy. That, that I don't want to go on a bus ride with him. But uh, at the same I mean, point, yeah, oh, sorry, his, his, his Rosemary's Baby was the beginning of what The Exorcist actually brings. 
So Rosemary's Baby and uh, Night of the Living Dead may be the two movies that are most responsible for the modern horror film, right? We stopped going into castles. We stopped having vampires and stuff like that. 1968, things start to change where the ending can be nasty. And we uh, don't worry about violence and blood and nudity as much. Uh, and we talk about some countercultural stuff, some controversial stuff. And Rosemary's Baby was so influential at the time. And it's really looking at uh, talking about the women's rights movement. I mean, here's this woman who doesn't have control of her body. She's basically living in an apartment that is red, right? She's in the fucking womb. We're in the womb with her. There's all this paranoia about what's going on. All these old people are telling her exactly what she needs to do. But at the center of it is this idea of all the systems failing. You know, the government's failing. Religion's failing. That movie has a cover that says, is God dead? That cover didn't exist. But you talk to people, it's like saying that Napoleon was short, which he wasn't. But we all believe it because it's been said a 100,000 times, right? We've all heard it. And the same that the New York Times had, uh, God is dead. And it doesn't exist. You know, it was from a movie. But it was so impactful that uh, it became part of the, the lexicon. So we already had this doubt and this unrest coming from Rosemary's Baby. And then you have a movie that says, no, we're going to bring the devil kicking and screaming into this thing. There's not going to be any subtext here. This is going to be, you know, the fight of good and evil. And uh, I, I think that that movie influenced horror films so much. That's an entire genre that exists that didn't exist before. There are a million possession films. Possession being used as a, uh, there's even a documentary called The Devil and Father Amor, which was done by William Friedkin. And it's just such a load of shit. But anyway, it's it's this whole thing about the, the last exorcist, right, who works in the Vatican. And uh, it's so funny how the people in Italy, they're really big on possession. Like one in six people has had to do possession. You know, and they look at it like it's just a cultural, psychological issue. It's right? a rite of passage. Yeah, like it's a rite of passage. So they're talking about this and they show someone being uh, being possessed. And wouldn't you know it? It's exactly like the movie. The voice is the same. I'm like, wow, I can't believe how accurate this movie was. Yeah, nobody was influenced by the movie, right? You don't have fact or, uh, or reality being shaped and turned into a new reality by the films. I think that's part of a curse, too. We, we curse ourselves in a weird way. We allow things that aren't true to become true. Because they really feel true. And I think that that's kind of a cool thing about The Exorcist, too. But no movie uh, of that series has ever had anything uh, that's a curse, except that they were all really fucking bad ideas. That's the curse. They were really bad ideas. They should have never made any of the sequels, really, except for maybe three. And the, <laughs> the remakes were terrible. And the uh, Italian movies that came out, there was like a, a spate for like five years where every movie that was coming out of Italy was the house of possession, possession in the sandwich, the possession of father noodles, whatever it might be. They just had one after another, nothing but possession films. And, and so anyway, I digress. My apologies. One thing I do find interesting is after The Exorcist came out and you do start to see kind of society in this new era of like exorcisms and uh, possessions and things being completed, you do see, like, when you watch, like, the real documentaries of people being exercised, 
they do react a lot like they show in the Exorcist movie specifically. But it's really interesting if you actually watch like other possessed movies, how they'll portray someone being possessed in a totally different way. Like even just the Exorcism of like Emily Rose, the way that she contorts I love and, like, that. her bones like go backwards and break and are crazy. But you never actually see that kind of thing when it comes to people that are possessed and being exercised. It's always just the shaking and kind of like foaming at the mouth and speaking in tongues. It's never the really crazy stuff. So, I mean, yeah, you get to the point where it's like, well, what's real? And obviously, like, yeah, they got really close with the movie because the people are able to do the same thing. But there's nobody that's acting like the other one either. And that movie was pretty popular. Yeah. Yeah, Emily Rose was a masterpiece. I love that one. That one literally scared me. There are moments in that that really scared me and hit on this thing that I grew up with, right? Uh, I have, No matter how logical I get, no matter how many times I can call it all hooey, all I need is some plates to fall for no reason in my house at 3 o'clock in the morning. There's demons everywhere doing a dance coming after me. And so it's it's just that way. I can't say that uh, it's... But you bring up something. Oh, Emily Rose is a magnificent thing. But I, if I may, I'd love to tell a, a story. You know the movies, the Conjuring films, yeah. the Ed and yeah. Lorraine Warren characters. I met Ed and Lorraine Warren. I went to their house, their little thing, back in the eighties. Uh, back in nineteen eighty nine, a friend of mine lived in uh, Connecticut. I'm trying New Canaan, Connecticut, I think it was, and he knew I was a hard guy. I was a big horror junkie. He said, "Would you like to go?" to the house of Ed and Lorraine Warren, because I had read the Amityville Horror, and I read this book called The Haunting, and they were, you know, the devil uh, chasers that you see in the books or in the movies. And so I'm like, yeah, I definitely want to go there. So it was one of the weirdest and most disappointing things I've ever had happen to me is that I go to this place, and, you know, it's just a regular track house, you know, uh, and that's fine. And there's a group of people, you have to pay $40 you know, to go into their thing. And I'm like, okay, that's steep, but when's the chances I'm going to see all these cursed objects and stuff that I had heard about? So my friend did it for me for a birthday present. It's raining. It's a Sunday morning. They only do it on Sunday mornings. They wait for a priest to come. They have a friend who's a priest and they say, okay, we're going to bless everybody before we go in here. And I'm like, wow, my heart's starting to race and everything. And I look and there's like Spencer's Gifts or Spirit Halloween store ghosts and pumpkins at the front door and i'm like oh no no you're kidding me right it's gonna be like that and they had like a welcome mat boo to you or something i'm like oh no and i'm starting to get sweaty like this is the worst that could possibly happen and we get inside and there's like all this really tacky shit and we're going down this long hall that's wood paneled and they stopped before a door and they said, and he goes, okay, just so you know, all the funny stuff is up here. The real stuff's behind this door. And that's Ed. And I notice, because I, I know, notice these kind of things, that he's packing. He's got a, a 32 and a shoulder holster. And I go, it looks like you're packing. He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, well, Lorraine reads auras. And I'm the enforcer. He goes, we do occasionally have some freaks that come here. He goes, we were looking at you. <laughs> and he said, but, you know, I figured, you know, you're okay. I'm like, yeah, all right, fine. So he opens up this door, and it's it's like what you would expect, a dank, stale, dusty basement with just rows of this stuff. And to get in there, we had to do the Our Father prayer, all this weird stuff. And we get in there, and they tell us, just stop before we go any further. I want you to know that there are items here that are very cursed. 
don't touch anything. If you bump into something, stop and get in touch with us. We'll need to come over to you. I'm like, wow, this is like really, it's get my imagination going. I'm going through the place. We see the Annabelle doll. And from the first thing you see, this big glass case, it's a big Raggedy Ann doll, which is even creepier than the movie doll. The movie doll just overdoes it. Yeah. The the Raggedy Ann doll is fucked. So it's in this thing, and, and there's like uh, prayers on it, hosannas and stuff to keep it in there. And uh, they tell me, oh, in this jar here is a demon that looks like a snake, and you won't see it until it's biting you. That's its scare tech. I'm like, what the fuck? You? Okay, great. Thank you. Keep that jar over there. That's fine. And there's all this stuff, and they're telling us one thing after another, and then they go, we're going to show you our demonic possession thing. You're going to see someone's head split wide open. That's what happens in, in real exorcisms. I'm like, sign me up. So we go into this room and they, they put on the projector and everything. And, and it's like your aunt and your uncle trying to show home movies. You got it yet? What the hell? Oh, come on, the lights. Turn off the lights. You know, all this stuff. They're just arguing with each other. And I'm like going, okay, this seems authentic. And they turn on the thing and it's a VHS tape. And it's just like everything you've ever seen, right? It starts, and then all of a sudden, there's a uh, the tape just doesn't work anymore, right? Suddenly, there's a cut, and all of a sudden, this guy has like black stuff on his face. He goes, his face is split. You saw how it just happened? And I'm like, no, I saw a fucking cut. You know, I saw this weird thing, and I don't know if that looks like this is such a this is like an eighth generation tape where everything is purple and green. Like I have no idea what I'm looking at. It could be blood. It could be chocolate syrup. It could be a shadow. And the pe- half the people there are quiet like me, and the other half are like, oh, my God, I see it. Oh, my God, I see it. And I'm like, oh, Lord, this is such a fucking disappointment. And then he, like, has the Necronomicon, Necronomicon there, and I'm like, oh, Ooh. the Necronomicon's there. You know, the one that the H.P. Lovecraft imagined in yeah. life? Like that, and he's, like, showing it like it's a sacred, holy, or unholy object. And he's got a painting drawn by Satanists in the corner, and I'm like, I gotta get the fuck out of here. Well, have you ever so tried the Necronomicon? Summoning the Nurgle, Nurgle Gate? Come on. Right, yeah, I should have been, right? I may as well have. I think they had breath mints that you could use. That was just like going to, to visit uh, Dagon. It's the Dagon breath mint. That was one, the one that I really liked that they had there. But, but, but yeah, it was really disappointing, but I, I, it's to the point of what you were talking about that, you know, it's, uh, you know, uh, all these exorcism movies, it's always the same thing. And then there's the occasional one that does something really interesting, like the bones breaking. And it's because it's it's this weird pageantry. I talk about like the two scariest movie styles for horror movies to me are ghost stories and demonic possession stories for the first act. The first act of both of those are terrifying because it's predatory, right? You don't know you're being followed by an invisible force. Reality is slowly shifting, and the whole thing is scaring the hell out of you. It's like even the sixth sense was scary in the first 25, 30 minutes of it. And then it starts to lose its steam when it starts to explain. So for me, like the ghost stories, like the small claims court of horror, you've got this thing of like the ghost is scary, and then you find out that it's a ghost, and then it's like, oh, he's actually uh, uh, a third. We need to get a third party in here because we have a, a dispute. In small claims court, uh, this person's the aggrieved and the other one's not listening. So can we get the third person? The third person's the person who's being haunted. 
then all you have to do is find the cursed object and shake it or burn it or whatever, and then it's over. And that's always disappointing to me because there's this whole thing of if you are this be, uh, this being that no longer has to live with the laws of physics and stuff, why would you ever go away? Why would you not uh, fuck you and fuck you and fuck you? You were all terrible while I was alive and just keep going. Instead, it's like this thing of, okay, well, I guess I guess uh, the courts have uh, gone in my favor. Now I'll go to sleep. And it's the same thing with exorcism films, which are terrifying until you find out that it's a demon when no one knows and no one's listening to the person and they think they're going insane. But you get to see what's happening that no one else gets to see. It's terrifying. And then once they go, well, it's a, uh, the demon. It's just a, a house call. It's just a doctor's visit. Oh, you've got possession. Oh, have two old guys come over and go like this a whole bunch of times. And the movie shrinks from the size of the entire house and the, the psyche down to a bedroom or a chair or a farmhouse, you know, a barn. Everything goes down to this small thing of just the human being being tossed back and forth. And most of the threat is gone because you know that the movie is always going to end with, oh, the, uh, the, the demon is dispelled. And that's another reason why Emily Rose is so great, because it doesn't quite work, does it? And, and I think that that's where you need to subvert those things, you know, for, for them to be scary. And it's, it's the irony that I have for myself as a viewer, is that the things that scare me the most are also the ones that become the most predictable in the third act. You know, I, I love unpredictability, and I think that's what horror I think is. a good one was, uh, for the unpredictability factor, was a Hereditary. That movie, oh, yes. Uh... It's just very, very depressing for most of the movie, I'd say. And then, oh, yeah. uh, and then at the end, it didn't even went end well. <laughs> so, right. yeah. I was like going, okay, this is like, uh, once again, bringing up that, that horrible person, Polanski. But it was like a 70s movie from Polanski. I was like, what the hell is yeah. going on? One minute, it's this re- deep thing about grief. And it has some of the most disturbing visual images. That whole thing of the, the sister yeah. being killed is so yeah. terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And then by the end, mom's hanging in the air and she's patting her head off. I'm like, what am I watching? This thing has just gone unhinged. Oh. That movie is like, is, yeah. you guys know that scene in Full Metal Jacket where they put the soap in the, in the, in the yep. pillowcases and they beat Private Pile with it? That movie is like your private pile and it's bricks instead of soap. It should be over and over and over. That's so- how all of Ari Aster's movies are. As someone who yeah. obviously reads and watches a lot of horror and stuff, do you actually have any movies that like actually scare you at this point? Every so often there's a movie that scares me. Um, a, a lot of uh, the thing about horror movies that I, I love to say why they're so good for us is that it's kind of like you you get stronger after watching one. You can never get scared the same way by a horror movie. You know, the first time you watch it, that's when you get scared, when it freaks you out. After that, it's a thrill. And part of the thrill is handing that scare over to somebody else. Uh, the last, I really got freaked out by the movie Frailty with Bill Paxton. I don't know oh, if you I guys saw that. Because no. that just took religious fervor to such a truth. Like, uh, it played it serious. So uh, th- those who haven't seen it, it's uh, 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 the father, a very loving father of two boys. Um, has a vision of an angel at night that's telling him there are demons that walk the earth and they look like men and you have to kill them and your family has to do it too. It's basically like taking 
what if Abraham and Isaac was a real story in the real world now? So you have to, you know, God tells you to do an unspeakable act. You're going to do it or you're going to be punished. And that movie terrified me because it, it hit home because I grew up in a, in a strict cult, basically. Oh, I see. Uh, and and I so that movie had me really dry. Um, the paranormal activity, the first one scared me. And the one that was done by the guy who did the X-Files, maybe it was the third one. There's a sequence in there where uh, uh, a friend, a family friend, is up in the attic with the little girl. And they're attacked by a demon that he can't see. This table starts to flip over. And he gets them both in a closet. He's trying not to freak out so that the girl doesn't panic. But he's been bitten aside. And he's just like hyperventilating. And he opens the door and the thing's still in there. And it doesn't move until it knows it's going to scare him. And that terrifies me every time I see it. Uh, when you play with timing, it really creeps me out a lot. There was a movie called Ritual the Ritual. Uh, Jerry, uh, not Jerry Bruckner. Is it Jerry Bruckner? It's Bruckner. I can't remember his first name. But um, that movie is uh, set in the Black Forest of Scandinavia. And there's a beast. Yeah. Oh, my God. I love I love that movie. It scared me because it works on liminal space. The idea that you're seeing stuff out of the corner of your eye. There's a shot in that movie that I had to rewind like three times because it's just a, a, a slow zoom in on this row of straight trees, and you don't realize it, but there's a hand like on the around. tree. You don't realize it until it moves. Yeah, and you don't see it until it moves. And I was like, Ooh! and I was like, oh, like, this uh, movie, this this. A little bastard. <laughs> and, and some, uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer scared me. That was a movie that felt a little too real. Uh, I'm not huge on serial killer movies, but Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer from like, 1986, really, uh, it's the first time Michael Rooker was in a movie. And that is really, really disturbing. It just has a feel like uh, an amorality that doesn't go like to Serbian film levels or anything. It just has this feeling like it might be real. You know, like uh, there's, a, there's a loss. It's a thing about serial killers that's so disturbing. There's a lack of empathy in that film. There's a lack of emotion. It's almost an emotionless film. All the emotions come from you. And, and that's really, really uh, dark. Um, so two final questions. Since you are on the Boo Boys, but I have to ask, yeah. first off, do you believe in ghosts? Second off, who is your favorite cryptid? Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so uh, do I believe in ghosts? Yes. Uh, do I believe in ghosts as um, like what you see in movies? I'm not so sure. I, I am a romantic. I like the idea that the afterlife could be imperfect. That seems like something I can attain, right? Because it really is like some, there's a glitch in the system. Something has to be resolved for a ghost to come back. But I believe that, you know, like I have something in my house. It doesn't do much, but I just know there's a presence here. And everybody who comes into the house feels it. And it's one that makes people feel welcome. And every so often, something will go by my eye and I'll be like, whoa, what was that? But do I know what it is? Or do I think that it's anything more than than something that's unknowable, like a supernatural deal. And I'm I'm just a Mothman guy. <laughs> yeah, that's respectable. Oh, yeah. It's not, it's not the Mothman best I know, but that's just... What was that? 
I just said Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, that was a movie that kind of blew me away. Uh, Richard Gere, I'm not expecting anything. The Mothman Prophecies. I, I really liked some of the clever ways that they played with that. You know, uh, it's not, not great, but I, I kind of like where it was going on that. I, I, I kind of like, uh, uh, Mothman maybe even being, you know, like someone from another dimension telling us what the fuck's going on, what, what's about to happen to us, trying to warn us. And we're going, Jesus Christ, glowing eyes. <laughs> we can't get over that. But, uh, yeah, uh, so ghosts, you know, yes, uh, I, I, I believe in them. I'm not sure if I know if it's an afterlife or anything like that. But that's what I love is that there's so, to me, supernatural is almost not like a, a good word to use because we don't know enough about nature. If you go deep enough into the woods, I mean, they just keep finding new species and things that aren't supposed to be able to happen, happen. And so I can't help but think, you know, there could be a spot in nature where, you know, this is just as natural as can be ghosts that suddenly show up. It doesn't have to be anything religious or anything like that. It's just, it's part of what, what goes on. And, I, I, and because it's so international, uh, how we look at ghosts is not. Uh, you know, European look at ghosts is different than the Asian look at ghosts, which is different oh, wow. than, yeah, uh, they're wildly different. They, they represent different things, but everyone has ghosts. And that tells me there's something there. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, and this is where you go. I don't believe in them at all. You're an idiot. <laughs> well, I personally, I like to believe I believe in ghosts, but I've never actually encountered much. So. I've not actually seen anything. I like the idea of thinking that there is something there and that we could, but I mean, I've gone to multiple haunted locations. I even, I've dragged some of these guys with me yeah, to never works. places and I've done like the, you know, the screaming radio at a graveyard, which I don't think is where ghosts would hang out anyway. Cause the whole point of a haunted house is a ghost is a person died there and their spirit remains in the house. Why would they be at the graveyard if they didn't die at the graveyard? It doesn't make any sense. Anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, just like I've, I've done so much and like I've had weird experiences in my life, but I've never actually experienced anything that really solidifies whether or not ghosts are truly real, but I will never say I don't believe in them because that would be the day it bites me in the ass and I get like, right. Oh, it's broken. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the funny thing, right? It's like, uh, uh, we, I've always been disappointed. Anything that I've ever tried, like going to see the Warrens. Yeah, bitter disappointment. You're going to be disappointed to try and go to something that somebody strongly suggests is going to be real. You want to uh, be disappointed? I, go to Roswell, New Mexico. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. That's oh, so man. <laughs> Roswell's not even I, I, No, no, you don't understand. Yeah. I took Daniel and Ivy, and we all went to Roswell, New Mexico, and they literally had like two alien attractions, one thick of alien in front of a gas station. Yeah. And it didn't even have like. They didn't even have like a bar or a restaurant or anything that was themed, you know? Yeah. Like the X Files lied to me. There was no like flying saucer diner you could go to. If you have a McDonald's, nothing. But you couldn't go in because it was under construction. You couldn't even go in there. That's funny. That's funny. Well, it'd be exact opposite. We did yeah, a exactly. UFO like walk out there and it was like this museum for aliens and it was like duct tape and glow paint. It literally was. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's that great. great. See, the exact opposite of that is, uh, for disappointment still, though, is uh, Salem, Massachusetts. Yeah. You go to Salem, and it's like all the witches are there and unionized, and uh, there's a gift shop every 10 <laughs> feet. 
Oh, and uh, everybody's selling T-shirts and, oh, wow. uh, you know, they all have like uh, shingles like doctors. And so it's like it's the most commodified thing you've ever seen. It's the place where, you know, allegedly all this terrible stuff happens. And it's like this weird Fort Lauderdale party <laughs> for, for witches. So, yeah, that's uh, I, I went to area... have witch stuff there. That's fair. Yeah, they at least have witch stuff, if nothing else. But uh, so yeah, that's stuff. <laughs> yeah. It cracks me up though that uh, you guys went to Roswell and it's like, oh man, there's just nothing, nothing. I went to Dublin, Ireland, you know, this place where allegedly there's ghosts in every beer can, right? right. You know, and so uh, I go there and we went on uh, the wall, the Roman wall. There's still a few parts of uh, the, the Great Wall uh, that Rome put around Dublin still there. Yeah. And people are like, that's the most haunted area. You go up there, the ghosts are up there walking. All I did was get cold. I stayed up there as long as I could. And I was like, oh, and this is just dark and cold. And there's better things to do, like stay in the pub. And, you know, like the guy who was our, like, a guy didn't even stay up there. He, as soon as he got us up there, he's downstairs, you know, down at the end, uh, smoking. <laughs> he's just like sitting there having a smoke. And uh, and we're there. You know, I believe that it's it's something else completely. Uh, you know, uh, have you guys ever read um, Neil Gaiman's American Gods? He has no, this thing about the show. Yeah, I've seen the show. The the book is a lot different than the show, but the, he has this concept in there where he talks about how uh, the gods get brought here by the people who travel here, the immigrants, and then they get forgotten by the new gods of America. And they're just left in the desert and in cities and stuff that, you know, uh, murder gods are now driving taxis in New York and stuff. And basically what he's saying happens. But he talks about sacred places. It's a sacred places are never where you think they're going to be. Haunted places are never where you think they're going to be. Because people think that it's going to be sacred places are going to be churches. He goes, where the sacred places are in America are roadside attractions. See the two-headed goat. That is where everyone goes with the highest level of hope. They go there with the open eyes and mystery and a sense of play. They return back to children. That is what worship is. And that's where all the gods hang out. And so I think that, you know, where places are haunted and stuff, or where ghosts are, aren't necessarily places that are going to be downers. You know, I don't know if it has anything to do with uh, curses in that way. It might just be that they have spots where the energy, where people are happy, right? If I was a ghost and I'm going to live in fucking eternity, I want to be around people who are happy. So I'd be attracted to laughter. Maybe comedy clubs. You're like walking, go, whoa, I'm going to go in here. I hear this thing. Whatever it is, maybe uh, going to Burning Man. Maybe all these ghosts are coming across the playa because all these people are bringing up this this reverent energy but uh who knows i kind of like the idea that we're not the ghosts are always going to be if they're real and like i said i don't know if there's anything to them anything more than an energy but uh if they're real maybe we're not supposed to find them and we stumble upon them and if we do you know if we do find them in a place maybe they're like well it's high time to get out of here. You know, there's a bunch of looky-loos coming here. Once you start selling tickets to show me, I'm out of here. <laughs> and then they go elsewhere. Who knows? All right. Any other questions, comments, or concerns? Oh, con concerns. I've got to say now. 
There's always concerns. There's always concerns. Yeah. There's always concerns. <laughs> I hope, uh, I hope uh, that I brought uh, what, what was uh, fun to you, you yeah. folks. I mean, it's very kind yeah. to be on here. Uh, it's, it's interesting. You know, I, I hear something and I just kind of go down that path uh, when somebody leaves something open. But I hope that we talk enough about uh, cursed films. I feel like there could be a whole another half hour on just the Twilight Zone. Because there's so much that's it's, in that. That's usually kind of how these shows end up going. It's like there's <laughs> yeah. a couple of topics, and then there's like an hour of other just random stuff that kind of happens in between. So this show is really supposed to be just a really cool conversation where you actually can learn a little bit of like history and stuff that happened, and maybe how people looked at stuff, and then how what we think about it. So going off on those tangents is totally fine. Well, that's great because I I, I love that. I love the uh, model that you're trying to go off of. I think that that's always fun. The idea of why I started my podcast is I just wanted to start conversations. Even though mine's more of a narrative-based thing, I'm setting up conversations in email. I'm setting up conversations that I'm going to have at conventions. I love meeting people who uh, listen to the show and they come to argue with me about some of my very pointed opinions. Uh, but it's always in this sense of the joy, right? I mean, we're all talking the way that we talk and don't stop because of the joy of, uh, of uh, movies and scares and, and things like that. And so I love that you're going to the idea of conversation. I stay up at conventions. I love when the convention is going but then after hours, that's where everything's really fun. Stay up till dawn with people hanging out, just talking about this kind of stuff and realizing how much we have in common in that and how we're we're part of this this tribe. You know, many of us, we're looking for a tribe for most of our lives. And then we find this group and it's like, yeah, we're getting a, a great second act in this life. Maybe the first one wasn't so great when we were teenagers. But you know what? This one's pretty fucking cool. And I like that. It seems like that's what you're trying to pull off here, and I like that. Now, hopefully, once all the conventions and stuff come back, we can get the Boo Boys to go to some kind of horror con Definitely. and go meet with oh, our yeah. fans. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I can I can give some good ideas, and especially if you want to, it depends on the kind of fan that you want to meet, uh, and, and your work fans, what kind that you have, because there are all sorts of types. And uh, we have some, some weird the, fans. Uh, yeah, I don't. No. We do have good ones. Like viewers, like you. <laughs> exactly. There's one out there with hearts in their hands and flowers in their arms. Oh boy, yeah, I, I have that kind of thing. Yeah, there's a few <laughs> folks that uh, give me some interesting conversations where you just go. I learned from a, an, uh, an author named uh, Jack Ketchum. I was at a convention with him, and he's written some really vicious books and stuff. And he's, but he's really this nice little mild-mannered guy he's passed since. But he had fans that would come up and go, Jack, here's what I think happened inside of this book. Are you, were you trying to say? And this guy went off on this thing like you take his head off and throw it in the trash can. He's insane. And Ketchum's just like looking at him, smiling and nodding. And then he goes, you know, you're a very observant reader. And that's all he said. <laughs> it's like the perfect answer, right? It's the perfect yeah. answer. You just yeah. let that guy go, yes, I am. You don't tell him he's right. You don't argue with him because this is one of those people that you go, I have to step back five steps and we're just going to look to see where the security is and, and be done. And that's uh, how I love to talk with, with folks that I meet sometimes because it can just get really heated. And you're like going, yeah, you know what? I think you're really passionate about this stuff. It's great to see someone so passionate. Now, let me go over here. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I always enjoy talking uh, about horror and uh, specifically uh, movies and how they mess with us in a great way. Uh-huh. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, yeah, thanks. Um, we'll go ahead and do the outro. <laughs> okay. Um, my name's Dalton. I'm Ivy. I'm Daniel. I'm Joey. And I'm S.A. Bradley from Hellbent Heart. And we're the Blue Boys. And thank you so much again for joining us tonight. And hopefully we have you on again in the future or we keep hearing more from your, your show. Thank you. Happy to do so. All right. Well, bye. 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 <laughs> Thanks so much.